Good morning. Welcome to Ivy Creek Baptist Church. We are glad to have you with us and to be in worship with us here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and the Lord willing, we're going to con conclude Mark chapter 6 this morning in our time together. Last week, uh, you'll note that we uh, looked at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and that wasn't just 5,000 people total, really, as we studied last week, we learned that that was probably uh, just a portion of the number of people that Jesus actually fed, including women and children. That number could have been as large as 20,000. And we looked at that last week and noted our Lord's compassion. We noted His creative power that was on display in that passage. And we also learned of His ability to completely satisfy us uh, fully in the very depths of our hearts. Well, this morning, we're going to look at another uh, of a really well-known incident in Jesus' life and another miracle that he performs and something that he does. Today we're going to look at uh, the miracle of Jesus striding atop the white caps of a storm-tossed lake. And uh, what we're going to see is that in doing that, we find that he has the ability to calm a storm that had overpowered his disciples. And as we look at this passage, once more, what I want us to do is to keep in line with what we've been doing in our study of this, this gospel. And that is for us to examine it, to determine what, who Jesus is, what does this passage reveal about who Jesus is. And, and then also to help us understand what kind of Messiah that Jesus is. And then finally, I want us to look and just see what that means for you and me. Now, in my preparation for the sermon today, I was reminded of, of what was a and still is a primitive, and a, but it's a time-tested and a time-proven process that a silversmith uses in, in trying to uh, make new kind of silver things with what he does. Generally, that process calls for uh, a pot to be set over a small furnace of some sort. And then into that pot, the silversmith will take coins or he'll take utensils of some sort and drop it down into that pot until it heats up enough until the silver begins to melt. And eventually when that silver becomes molten, what, the, what will happen is there'll be a separation that starts taking place. All of the impurities, all of the, the junk, all of the, what we call the dross inside the silver will then rise to the top. And, and what the silversmith does is he takes a utensil that he, he scrapes across the top of that pot until he's able to get rid of that dross. And, and the process is not a, a quick process. It takes time. It takes time for that whole thing to happen. But the silversmith knows when it is completed, when he can peer down inside the pot and he can see his reflection just as if he was looking into a mirror. Well, I imagine many of us understand that. And, and, and then I also think that it's such a beautiful example, though, of how the Lord works in our lives. The prophet Malachi, when he writes his prophecy, records that God says that the Lord sits, he sits like a refiner and a purifier of silver. That explanation tells us why Christians are so often really called upon to go through the fires and the testings in this life. God works in us to, to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he does that is he works to remove the dross, to remove the junk to remove the impurities of our life until His image is reflected in us for the world to see. I imagine all of us can understand a little bit of what that's like. I mean, we recognize what it's like to go through difficult times, times of testing, 
times of struggle. We might call it going through the fire. Or we might use another metaphor, as we are going to see this morning, of heading right into the middle of a full-fledged storm. Some of you are there right now. And the questions that inevitably bubble up from the depths of your soul, questions like this, can I get through this? Can I hold on? Will this ever end? Is there any, any hope? If you've ever been there, if you're there right now, then I believe that this passage that we're going to say this morning will be very important to you. As I mentioned earlier, we're continuing through Mark's gospel, and today we're going to concentrate on a miracle that involves a storm. This is a literal storm. It is a historical passage that details a real event that took place out on the Sea of Galilee. But even though it is a literal historical event, this passage serves as an illustration, really, of what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. And my prayer is, is that we might see and we might encounter Jesus the Christ, that we might believe in him, that, that we might trust in him and cast the full weight of who we are upon him. And through such belief and trust, we will possess and enjoy the full and eternal life that he came to provide us. That is my goal and my hope this morning. So with that as an introduction, let's read the scriptures for ourselves. Picking up there in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6, the Bible tells us this. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing. For the wind was against them. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat immediately, the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your kindness and graciousness and mercy to us. Thank you for being so good to us that you have given us a revelation of yourself through your holy word. Thank you that you have given us an opportunity to gather around that word this morning and to be able to study it for ourselves. And Father, we recognize that your word is truth. And therefore, we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would make us holy, that you would set us apart for that which you have called us by the truth that is revealed to us in your word. 
Help us to be people who seek to know more about you by what you've revealed to us. And Father, then we pray that what is revealed would then change our lives, change the way that we see things, the way that we respond. Help us, Lord, to become more like Jesus. Help us to, to have that dross removed from our lives, that we may reflect the image of Christ to those around us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we discuss this passage today, we do need to locate it firmly in where it, it comes. Uh, Luke does not record this event, but John, Matthew, and Mark do. And each one of those records what happens here directly following Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at last week. And, and, and when we look at it from John's perspective, when John writes what happens here, he tells us that after Jesus had fed that multitude of people, that the multitude was just so overwhelmed by what Jesus had done that they were going to come and forcibly make Jesus be their king. And, and, but Jesus recognized that their only reason for wanting to do that was not because they, they truly understood him to be their Lord and master, but rather it was only because he had fed them. In fact, he says, the only reason you're coming after me is because I gave you food yesterday. This would have been the day following. And so, so Jesus was not willing to be crowned king on that basis. So he sought solitude in the hills by the Sea of Galilee in order to, to pray. That's what happens. But before he goes to pray, Mark tells us there in verse 45 that we opened with in our text that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now that might initially seemed like a strange thing for Jesus to do. After all, would not, during such a, a, a terrific event as what had just taken place and with all of the crowds coming and, and, and coming around him to forcibly make him king, would he not want his disciples surrounding him at this point? But when we take into consideration that the multitude was all worked up and they were all getting, getting so worked up into a frenzy to make him king, then the reason that Jesus sent his disciples away starts to make a little more sense to us. As Kent Hughes has noted, the crowd had been dangerously fueled with messianic fervor after the feeding, and Jesus wanted to get the disciples out of there lest they fuel the fire even more. But what we recognize is that getting the disciples to leave was not as easy as it might have, we might have thought that it would be. Mark tells us that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. That word made there is a strong expression indicating urgency and, and a sense of pressure. In other words, Jesus had to force his disciples to get into the boat and leave. They evidently did not want to leave him. Jesus had to make them do it. And then once they were all on the board, you kind of get the impression that once they finally got them loaded up on the boat, it's Jesus who's down there pushing the boat away from the shore to get it on out to sea so that they could actually go on. It was only after he had forced his disciples to obey and to leave that Jesus secluded himself to pray. Now, verse 47 tells us that when this event took place, it took place in the evening. All this occurred toward the end of the evening. And, and so what we know is that the disciples were setting out on their boat out to sea after dark. Now, just as a little bit of topographical information, the Sea of Galilee sits down about 600 miles before, below, uh, uh, 600 feet, excuse me, below sea level. 
And where it's situated there, when wind would blow off the Mediterranean, it would blow through the mountains that sort of engulfed and surrounded the sea. And, and th that wind would get cooled off by those mountain airs, and then it would flow down into the, into the bowl of, of the Sea of Galilee. And when that cool air would meet the warm air on the surface of the sea, it would cause great winds and great turbulence and oftentimes a lot of unexpected and cropped up storms especially at night. And that's exactly what happened on this night. Because verse 48 says that Jesus is now up on the mountain. He's praying, but he's looking out to see his disciples. And when he does, he sees them in the boat, Mark tells us, and he sees them straining at rowing. Why? For the wind was against them. In other words, what we recognize is that a sudden storm had come up and now the disciples, here they are in the middle of, in the middle of a boat, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm. And what was it that got them there? Obedience. You see, it was Jesus who had made them get in that boat. It was Jesus is the one who told them to go across the sea at nighttime. It was obedience to Jesus that put them where they were. Once again, I like what Kent Hughes has written. He says, think of the disciples' misery in that open cockpit with their feet soaking in icy bilge water, straining at their oars. Ironically, he says, the disciples were in this miserable trouble because they obeyed Jesus. He goes on to make this very important point. He says, what a lesson for the church. He says, imagine what disobedience could have gotten those men that night. Perhaps a full stomach, a warm bed. Perhaps an opportunity to regale their hosts with stories about Jesus. Yet it was obedience that made them so uncomfortable. So we have to conclude that this boat ride that the disciples were on without Jesus was not the disciples' idea, it was Jesus' idea. In fact, the disciples were only doing what Jesus had made them do. That leads me to the first point that I want you to understand today. The first point that we need to recognize today from this text simply is this. Obedience to Jesus does not guarantee a life free from storms. In fact, it may create them. You know, there are those who, in the name of Christ, preach that when you become a Christian, life is just going to all of a sudden get better for you. Difficulties are just going to go away. And Man, at Christmas time, you'll be able to drive right up to the mall, and suddenly there's going to be a brand new spot just appear for you right there in front of Belk. You can just walk right in. That's how God works, right? Your health, your finances, your relationships, everything. Everything's just going to get better and better. After all, they say, that's what God wants for you, to have a wonderful and carefree life. The only problem with that message is that it does not square up with what Scripture teaches. It doesn't square up with what we read here in this particular passage, as a matter of fact. Well, we really might want to question why. Why does things tend to work like that? Why would Jesus send his disciples away in a boat on the Sea of Galilee even though he knew that they would encounter a storm? Well, the overarching answer to that question really, I believe, is noted back in what we discussed to begin with, and that is that God is a refiner and a purifier of silver. 
In other words, through life's hardships, through life's struggles, the Lord purifies His children. He he removes the dross from our lives. He removes the impurities. He, He removes the junk from our lives. And He does that in order to produce the image of Christ in us. And I propose that according to our text this morning, we see that the Lord's process of purification really reveals two very important things to us. And those two very important things go hand in hand. We really, we really can't see one unless we see the other. And they're the next two points on your outline. And the first one of those, the second point on your outline is this. Storms come to prove that we are weak. Storms come to prove that we are weak. Notice again that verse 48 says the disciples were straining against the oars. I love that word. In the Greek, that verb actually literally means to suffer severe distress, to be harassed. In other words, this wind came up and it was so strong that the disciples had to work as hard as they could digging against the oars. That's literally the the idea that Mark wants to convey. They were digging against the oars, trying to make their way toward the shore. And from this picture, we really get a sense of the strength and the intensity of the storm, but we also get a picture of the ineffectiveness and the inability of the disciples to overcome this storm. Not only that, but if we look closer, we see something else. In his version of the story, John tells us that the disciples had set out on their voyage in the evening somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. When we read Mark's version and even Matthew's version, we will recognize that when Jesus came walking to his disciples, he came walking on the water during the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night was defined by what the Romans had defined it, and that was between the time of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So when we do a little math, we start realizing that these disciples had been out there on that sea digging and straining and working as hard as they could for six, seven, eight hours. They had to be completely exhausted. John MacArthur writes this. He says that such straining at the oars indicates that the disciples were working feverishly to survive. At least four of them, he writes, and perhaps as many as seven, were experienced fishermen on that lake. And only an extreme storm would have given them such difficulty. Due to conditions, the the conditions that were there, a trip that normally would have lasted only an hour or two had become an all-night struggle to keep themselves from drowning. All of their efforts at rowing and straining and pulling for hours and hours and hours had accomplished nothing. They were at the mercy of the storm, which just moved them wherever it desired. Some of you probably know what that feels like. You are faced with situations right now that seem utterly hopeless. You have fought and you have struggled. You have tried to overcome your stresses. You have faced the pain and the harassment that challenges bring and continue to beat against the hull of your boat. And the truth is you're tired. For some, you've concluded that you're just not strong enough to continue fighting. I wonder, I wonder if you realize that admitting your weakness is actually a strength. 
I wonder if you recognize that God sometimes sends us into the middle of a storm so that we have to come to grips with the reality that we are simply not strong enough to face that storm alone. Now, on its own, I want you to know the fact that you're not strong enough to face a storm on your own is not very comforting. In fact, I would say that it even seems somewhat fatalistic to consider that that obedience to Christ will sometimes bring storms in our lives and that those storms are going to be bigger than we can handle on our own. I would admit that that's almost a fatalistic way of approaching things. But, but that's what makes the second part of this that we recognize in this text so very, very important. Because it is incredibly important that we recognize that sometimes in our obedience, God will send storms into our lives that are bigger and greater and badder than we ever thought. And it will prove to us again and again and again that we are weak people and we're not able to accomplish anything on our own. But then that drives us to what the truth of this text actually really wants us to focus on. And that's the third point. And that's this. Storms come to prove that Jesus is strong. Listen, Mark tells us in verse 48 that it was the fourth watch of the night and Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, can you get your hands around what that must have been like? You're the disciples and you're sitting out in this boat and you're wet and you're tired and you're exhausted from hours of hard labor. And though it's not said, I can't believe that there's not at least one or two of them that aren't a little afraid of what's going to happen to them if they're going to make it through this storm, worried about their safety, and then all of a sudden you look up and you see Jesus walking to you on the water. There have been many who have attempted to explain what Mark tells us so clearly. They've tried to explain it away. They've said, well, really what happened here was is that the boat wasn't very far from the land and there was a sandbar. And Jesus was actually walking on the sandbar. And it just looked to the disciples like Jesus was walking on the water. Some have even proposed that there was actually ice on the Sea of Galilee and that Jesus was walking across ice. You know, here's what I've come to learn. There are many people who will attempt to explain away the miraculous that the Bible reveals to us. And you want to know the reason why they want to explain away the fact that Jesus really couldn't have been walking on the water? It's because in their mind, they can't find a way in the world where a mere man could walk across water. And friend, they're exactly right. A mere man could never walk across water. But Jesus was no mere man. He was God in the flesh. And the miracle that he performed this day out there on the Sea of Galilee really proved to his disciples that that was true. This was once more a glimpse into and a revelation of the deity of Christ. The same Christ that spoke the world into existence, who, who created the sea and the dry land, only he has the ability to stride across the white caps of a storm-tossed storm lake. Both Mark and Matthew make an interesting statement that 
when Jesus walked toward the disciples, it said that he would have passed them by. And I want, you know, that phrase has just confounded interpreters for centuries. What does he mean? Why, if Jesus was going to come out to help his disciples, would he have passed them by? Well, perhaps the explanation is as simple as this, is that to the disciples, it seemed as though Jesus was going to pass them by. That's a possibility. Or maybe there's more here. Many interpreters, including those like Mark Strauss, have, have suggested that this language is an intentional echo of what we read in the Old Testament as being a theophany or an opportunity for God to reveal himself to humanity. We see that happen in Exodus 33, if you remember. Exodus 33, Moses asks God, show me your glory. God says, okay. He says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. Do you get that? To pass in front of you. Happens again in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah, Elijah is really frustrated because he thinks he's the only faithful servant of God left in all of Israel. And God comes to him and he says, you go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord because the Lord is about to pass by. So the thought is, is that by passing by the disciples here on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is actually revealing his divine glory to them. What's evident is that at least at the beginning, the disciples had a hard time believing what they were seeing. Verse 49 states that when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed he was a ghost, a phantasm in the Greek is literally what it is. They, 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 they thought he was something that was real or a ghost. And it says they cried out, they shrieked in terror because of what they saw. Some have chastised the disciples for that immediate response, saying that they should have they should have been expecting Jesus to come out there. They shouldn't have been surprised at seeing him. They should have been expecting it. And the reason they say that is because Mark says the reason they didn't understand it is because they had not understood the miracle of the loaves because their hearts were hardened. I mean, after all, think about it this way. After what we learned last week of where Jesus broke the bread and he distributed the fish, how many basketfuls of leftovers did they come up with after that miracle was completed? Twelve. And so many proposed that each disciple had a basket full of leftovers for himself that he took onto the boat with them. And so right in the boat with them was the real reminder of what Jesus had just done hours before. And yet here they are amazed that Jesus would be walking to them on the water. But I think that before we get too aggressive in our reprimands and our rebukes of the disciples... We should at least imagine how unexpected it would have been to look up and see a man walking to you on the water in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm. To expect that kind of behavior maybe is more than we would have even expected of ourselves. And perhaps that's the point. You see, each one of us, if we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus, we carry within us the evidence of a miracle that is even greater than the multiplication of bread and fish. We carry within us the knowledge of the salvation that Christ brings to every sinner who will acknowledge his or her need and then believe that Jesus Christ 
can meet that very need. And as we noticed last week, Jesus not only supplies our needs, he fills us to overflowing with his blessings. As a matter of fact, John 6 goes on to say that Jesus himself is the bread of life and that he has come to give that life to us. He is our all-satisfying, all-sustaining bread that grants us eternal life. And friend, we carry that within us. And that's a greater miracle than a basket filled with bread and fish. Sometimes what we need to remember is when the storms of life come into us, when the wind blows against us and it's contrary and we're digging and we're rowing and we're doing everything we can, we need to recognize that the all-sustaining bread of life is still, is still our bread. And he's still our hope. When Jesus reached the boat, he recognized the fear of the disciples. He said to them in verse 50, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. Okay, that's, that's the opposite of what they were. Tired, hungry, disgruntled. Be of good cheer. Why? Because it's me. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus revealed his identity in order to dispel the fear. Yes, they had been obedient. Yes, their obedience brought them to where they were. Yes, they were overpowered by the circumstances that they were in. But don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Why? Because it's me. I'm here. Friends, if we look around us, if all of our attention is always focused on the circumstances and the things around us, we will inevitably constantly be disheartened. If we look within us and we see what we've got to muster up to face those difficulties, we're going to constantly be, be discouraged because we know we're not strong enough. But this is the point of the passage. Our focus is not to always be on our circumstances and it's not to be in ourselves. The point of this passage is to point us to Jesus who is strong. And he says, look to me. Look to me in faith and why? I can, I can make your fears vanish. Because when you're weak, the Bible says Jesus is strong. The Lord said this through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Brothers and sisters, though that message was given to the nation of Israel, it's a promise that you and I as Christians can also recognize as for us. The writer of Hebrews reminds us the Lord has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Now, does that mean that God is going to show up and come at just the time that we think he ought to show up and come? No. But it does mean that he will come at just the right time. You see, he knows when we need him most. Jesus waited until that boat was out in the middle of the lake. He waited until the disciples had exhausted all of their energy. And that's when he came. Just the right time, Jesus walked on the water to show his disciples that the very thing that they feared... The raging, seething sea that was merely a set of steps for him to come to them. You know, often I think we fear the difficult experiences of life. Things such as illness, and loss of loved ones, and 
financial hardships, other stressors that come into our lives. We fear those things only to discover that it was those very experiences that actually brought Jesus closer to us. Mark says that when Jesus got in the boat, the wind ceased. John says that when Jesus got in the boat, they were immediately at the place that they were sailing to. When you start digging into this, you realize that there was a lot of miracles taking place out there on that sea. It wasn't just one of him walking. There was a lot of miracles that were happening. And we find out that once he got to Gennesaret, listen, people brought the sick all from all over to Jesus. And he, he touched them and they were healed. And they even, if you'll just let us touch the hem of your garment, they were healed. This passage is just replete over and over and over again with the miraculous of what Jesus does. His miraculous divinity is on full display almost in every single verse in this passage. But I want you to know something. Even in light of that, we need to remember that the Lord doesn't promise to take away all of our difficulties. He doesn't promise to, to make our lives a bed of ease. Rather, what he does promise is to get us through the darkness. What he does promise is to get us through the violence. He promises to carry us through the storm. And that's why we need to be encouraged. That's why we should worship Him. That's why we should rejoice in His glory. Mark concludes that, that the issue there by saying that the disciples didn't, they marveled beyond measure because they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was, was hardened. You know, sometimes I think that's quite, that's, that's probably where a lot of us are. It's where all of us begin. With hardened hearts, we don't understand. We don't recognize what God is doing. But here's the beauty of it. When Matthew concludes this, he tells us not only did they not understand everything that was going on, they understood enough to realize that they were in the presence of the Master. Matthew says that when Jesus got in the boat, they came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're struggling with what's happening in your life. And you're struggling through the fact that you don't understand exactly what God is doing, but you do know that you've not been... It's not where you are today. It's not because of something that you've done wrong. It's just because you are where you are. And you also recognize that you don't have enough strength to get through it on your own. But you do recognize and you do believe that even though you don't understand it, that Jesus is still stronger than anything that you're going to face. Then the answer is to fall on him and to worship him and to trust in him. In spite of what your circumstances may say to you. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Even though we encounter storms in our lives... We should be encouraged and should worship Jesus and rejoice in his glory because he carries us through the storm. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going on in your lives. Perhaps, perhaps some storms have come into your lives and God has allowed them to come in order to consume the dross, in order to remove the junk and the impurities that are there. Know this, if that's what he is doing, then the presence of that storm in your life does not mean that God does not love you. Rather, it means just the opposite. It means that he loves you enough to continue to conform you into the image of his son.
and to produce within you that image that will then be able to be seen by those around you. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And I've asked Will to lead us in the singing of How Firm a Foundation. There's a couple of verses in that hymn. This is one of my favorite hymns because of the theology that is there. The richness of these words. We're going to sing these words in just a minute, but think about them ahead of time. He says, fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. My grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only desire thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. What a wonderful picture of what a wonderful Savior does through us. Let's pray together this morning.